The scientific revolution starts now. I'm Michael Hudson. I've uh, been a uh, ac- academic uh, a- a professor of economics since 1969, but before that I worked on Wall Street. And after that, I worked on Wall Street. So most of my experience has not been uh, in academia, except for three years at the New School for Social Research, uh, teaching international trade theory, and then for over a decade at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, which is the center of modern monetary theory, uh, dealing with uh, uh, money and uh, credit. Uh, And I worked for numerous uh, think tanks and organizations putting together alternative views of the gross national product, uh, but most of my work has actually been uh, for governments, uh, for the U.S. government, uh, the Canadian government on international finance, uh, uh, Latvian government on uh, tax policy, uh, Chinese government on general uh, history of economic thought. I was a professor at uh, Peking University, which is sort of the Harvard University of China for a number of years, uh, and at uh, Hong Kong uh, at the university there. So uh, bo- the common denominator of what I've been doing is that I think uh, academic economics is on the wrong track. Uh, as soon as I began to teach international trade theory at the New School in 1969, I found uh, everything that it said was wrong and uh, everything that it forecast against the uh, uh, for uh, how free trade and an absence of uh, tariff protection and especially following IMF austerity programs would help grow uh, and uh, the that uh, I had numerous visits at Washington uh, with the White House the Treasury uh, they all said that the way to grow is to cut labor's wages cut labor's living standards uh, and essentially force governments to sell off their uh, raw materials resources and land uh, to, to finance uh, and the uh, universal message of uh, almost all of uh, the Wall Street people I worked with and uh, of academia was that uh, the way to get rich is to financialize the economy. You get rich by going into debt and using debt to buy uh, houses, real estate, stocks and bonds and increase their prices. Uh, and the whole idea of getting rich was all about uh, not producing more goods and services, but to uh, uh, increase asset prices, real estate, stocks and bonds. Uh, and you increase them by going into debt. And the more debt the economy had, the less money it had uh, for profit. So for the last 10 years in the United States, uh, 92% of the profits of the Fortune 500 companies have been used to buy stocks, uh, their own stocks, buyback programs, or to pay out as dividends. Only 8% is used on new investment. And uh, if uh, the, the main uh, message of mainstream economics is you want to offshore labor. You want to deindustrialize. You want a post-industrial society. Uh, and uh, if you could just uh, move all, as much of America's industry as possible to China and to Asia, uh, there will be more profits for the firms, and that will increase the stock prices, and the economy is going to get richer. Uh, this was uh, obviously it doesn't work. This is the advice that's given to uh, global South countries uh, to develop. It's the the basis of uh, IMF uh, uh, so-called stabilization programs. I found that 
there's a kind of Orwellian vocabulary in academic economics, which is really why I stopped uh, uh, teaching regularly. And the vocabulary uh, essentially uh, turns everything inside out. My own background in studying economic his- economics uh, was classical economics. Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, all sort of culminating in Karl Marx and uh, the socialists uh, because uh, Marx is the last free market economist. Uh, he was the last economist uh, that said uh, that uh, industrial capitalism is revolutionary. The function of industrial capitalism and of all of the uh, uh, British political economy that he described in the 19th century was to free markets from landlords, uh, the hereditary landlord class that had inherited the land in England and Europe, uh, to free economies from uh, predatory banking uh, and uh, use banking to actually finance industrial production uh, and to free economies from monopolies. That was a common denominator of uh, all of the uh, uh, classical economists. And uh, uh, Marx said, this is, uh, this is great. The, ro- the role of uh, markets under industrial capitalism is to get rid of economic rents, to get rid of land rent, and monopoly rent and interest charges that are not productive at all so that you want to minimize the cost of living. You want to minimize uh, the cost of doing business because uh, if employers don't have to pay uh, labor more and more money to uh, pay for housing, for health care, for education, then uh, they can uh, outcompete with other countries. Well, to make a long story short, uh, I found that uh, the the policies of the United States today uh, are uh, deliberately deindustrializing, uh, and in fact, they've been deindustrializing to such an extent that even if the United States were to uh, uh, try to reindustrialize and bring labor back home. Uh, it would have to raise prices by about 500%. Living standards would have to fall by about uh, 30%. Uh, and that's because uh, the American labor, if you were to give um, American labor all of their clothes, all of their transportation, all of their food, uh, everything physical for nothing, American labor still could not uh, compete uh, because uh, it's housing costs, it's uh, health care costs, uh, it's uh, monopoly uh, rents, it's uh, debt service, uh, it's all of these charges price American labor out of the market. None of this appears in uh, classical economic uh, theory. Uh, and uh, Basically, the economic theory today is the reverse of what Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Ricardo and the whole 19th century uh, looked at uh, for how an economy should develop. Uh, the objective of uh, the economy today is to maximize economic rent is what the economists of the 19th century called unearned income. Uh, if you look at uh, the gross national product, accounts of the United States, they depict America as getting richer and richer when people have to pay higher rents. Uh, And richer and richer if uh, you own a home and uh, your housing price is inflated in the the national income and product accounts. They say that if uh, if a homeowner were to rent out his house to himself, what would he charge for the rent? Well, as rents go up, as housing prices go up, GDP goes up. Uh, As people 
rule of uh, one way to uh, accelerate GDP is to fall behind in your uh, credit card uh, uh, accounts. And then you're, mm-hmm. if you fall behind in your credit card payments, then your uh, interest rates go up from 19% to a penalty rate of 29%. The GDP accounts say that that is providing financial services. GDP goes up. Uh, a little while ago on this very program, you had my uh, colleague, Steve Keen, who feels the same way about economics, uh, academic economics, the way that I do on. Uh, and he was just in New York. Uh, we had a meeting uh, two weeks ago uh, here in Forest Hills, where I live. And he was telling me about uh, how he'd come down from Harvard, where he'd given a paper on uh, uh, global warming. And uh, his adversary was uh, William Nordhaus, who had said, well, don't, there's nothing to worry about global warming. Uh, if global warming would go up two degrees, uh, mass flooding and everything, it would really only cut GDP by 0.2%. Uh, and I told Steve, I thought his uh, response uh, should have been that actually global warming is going to help accelerate GDP. It'll uh, add to GDP uh, because, for one thing, there's going to be much more flooding and you're going to have to rebuild houses again and again and again that are destroyed by uh, extreme weather, uh, the uh, hurricanes, a lot of rebuilding there, a lot of flooding, uh, a lot of uh, uh, reconstruction, uh, disease actually actually has been uh, helping GDP quite a bit because you have to uh, uh, now pay 18% of America's GDP for uh, the Obamacare, for the uh, for uh, medical care, much higher than uh, the proportion of any other country. All of these things are considered uh, GDP. Uh, robbery helps uh, the GDP goes up and uh, uh, <laughs> burglary uh, because uh, people have to uh, replace uh, what's taken uh, apart. So uh, the GDP... Uh, uh, is a travesty of any measure of welfare or size, and it's a travesty of comparing uh, a post-industrial economy like the United States, where the objective is not to produce anything at all, but to import, import it all, uh, and economies that actually produce uh, goods and services. So uh, basically, my books are about uh, uh, the contrast between what uh, academic economics says and uh, what uh, is reality. And uh, all that means is, and I think the reason you invited me on this show, uh, is because uh, economics is not really a science as it's taught. Mm. It's a lobbying effort by uh, the finance, insurance, and real estate sector, the fire sector. It's a lobbying effort by uh, the uh, parts of the economy that don't produce uh, goods and services, uh, Mm. that uh, only collect income without playing any productive role at all. Uh, empty uh, prices, that is, price without any underlying value. Uh, and uh, that uh, is being promoted as economic growth. And basically, it's uh, as if... It- Economics is like a criminal case uh, in court where you have two opposing attorneys. Uh, the 19th century attorneys were prosecutors for the landlord class. They said, why should we have to pay the heirs of the warlords who conquered England uh, and, and France uh, to collect uh, ground rents without producing anything? Uh, what possible function do they play? Uh, why should we have to pay banks uh, money for creating uh, – uh, uh, interest for creating credit that actually uh, the governments uh, can simply uh, create their 
own money, uh, or uh, at least uh, create credit for a productive uh, purpose. And uh, why do we uh, permit monopolies, most of which were created by the government to sell off uh, to creditors because it couldn't afford to pay them their debt? Uh, why do we ha- have to do anything of that? Uh, we don't need it. Let's get rid of the rentier sector, the rentier sector being landlords uh, uh, and uh, bankers and uh, monopolists. Well, uh, by the end of the 19th century, the rentiers fought back, and they developed uh, uh, what a defense attorney would do in a trial. They said there's a whole different reality. There's no such thing as unearned income. There's no such thing as economic rent. Everybody deserves what they have. The landlord produces a valuable service in renting out uh, the land and the uh, the housing and deciding who to rent to. And uh, the bankers make a, a wonderful service when they uh, charge interest and especially when they charge penalty fees because that helps uh, make uh, people uh, pay their debts on time and that's uh, essential for productivity. So of course we charge penalty fees as part of the gross domestic product. And uh, monopolies are also part of the uh, uh, GDP because after all the monopolist is simply creating an orderly market. So uh the problem is that instead of economic students getting both sides of the prosecution and the defense uh, of the rentier economy, they're only getting one side of the picture. Uh, they're getting uh, the defense of the rentiers, not the uh, classical economy, economics. And that's why in uh, graduate economic courses, they no longer teach the history of economic thought. They no longer teach economic history uh, because if you had the history of economic thought, you'd know that uh, contrary to what Margaret Thatcher said, there is an alternative, that things don't have to be this way. There is a reason why China is growing so rapidly and American economy is uh, being squeezed tighter and tighter. Uh, and that's because of, uh, uh, it's uh, basically using its uh, revenue to uh, create new means of production and uh, include create a, a broader environment. Uh, it's true that it provides education freely instead of charging $50,000 a year, which is what people have to pay in New York. Uh, but that, uh, if you would, uh, say, what if uh, we credit China with every person with a degree is having paid $50,000 a semester uh, or a year, uh, obviously that would be much bigger. It's true that the Chinese people do not have to pay a $4,500 a month rent, which is the average rent here in New York City. Um, does that really make them poor? Or does paying uh, the $4,500 a month rent that increases America's GDP actually turn out to be an economic burden. I think uh, uh, orthodox neoliberal economics gets it wrong. And what is really an economic burden, uh, or what classical economists call transfer payments, uh, is uh, uh, to them uh, a benefit because they're the beneficiaries. They're the landlords. They're the bankers that lend uh, money uh, to landlords to buy buildings to pay the rent as interest. Uh, we're, we're in a uh, kind of a rentier society where uh, the uh, uh, actual uh, production is viewed merely as overhead instead of uh, the rentiers, the rent recipients, being an overhead on the productive economy. So you're having an inside-out perspective in uh, all of this. I don't know how to say it more uh, clearly than that. 
Demystify is purely supported by donations from audience members like you. I know that this sounds like an NPR ad or some kind of public radio drive, but the fact is, is that it is very, very true. And so if you like what we do, if you want to help us grow, if you want to help us do live shows, eventually start to fund independent research projects that the Academy will not fund, come over to patreon.com slash demystify For just a couple dollars a month, you can help us keep the ship going. You can join us on our weekly patron chats where we decide what next conversations are going to look like, how we should dive deeper into topics. You can start to meet people that are into the same kinds of questions as you, join our community, and become a larger and larger part of the scientific revolution. Another way that you can help is you can block off April 6th and 7th of 2024 because we are going to host our very first event in Austin, Texas. We're going to time it to the eclipse, and we don't have tickets on sale yet, but as soon as we do, we will let you know. And if you don't have money, if you can't travel then just leave a comment. Spread the word about the Demystify Side podcast and you will have done your part in making the scientific revolution a reality. For now, back to Michael Hudson. I know you have some solutions in mind as well. And before we get to those, I was hoping we could try to understand why, what is failing in the present sense? Because the idea that these firms are profiting and growing and the stock market's climbing and the GDP is on track doesn't seem to work. That's the claim. And the reason for that is that it doesn't, these benefits of the firms don't actually trickle down to the laborers. Is that correct? <laughs> but that's working. Yes, that's working for if you're a stockholder and uh, a billionaire, if you're one of the 1%, it's working just fine. The question is, who is the economy going to be run for? The 1% or the 99%? Uh, so uh, you could say uh, the the economy is working uh, uh, just fine uh, for the 1%, uh, which is why it's so bizarre to hear uh, President uh, Biden's team come out last week and say, well, uh, we're going to win the election next year on Bidenomics uh, of uh, reindustrializing the economy. Well, uh, how on earth are you going to reindustrialize the economy if you have to pay rents and uh, uh, Obamacare and uh, monopoly prices and all of the uh, your credit card uh, uh, rates? Can't be done. I mean, I think that there's also something else, which is that people want to become part of this uh, rentier class. Right, because it's a satisfying thing to be able to have a property that pays for itself and then pays for you to be able to live and you don't have to deal with the factory floor, with a manager, with all of these different things that make it difficult or sometimes undignified to live, right? The the idea that somebody's stuck in a really unpleasant work situation is uh part and parcel of the the myth of work that we tell right so if you have to go work for somebody else it's it takes away some of your freedoms inherently and so the the dream and you see this all the time people constantly sell courses for this on the internet you know how to become self-employed how to generate a passive income where you figure out how to set something up and it just runs in the background and you're able to take all of the profits and party and it's hard to it's it's hard to fault people for wanting that because working is hard unless well, you right. unless you love your work right <laughs> i feel like most people i i mean myself included for most of my life i was working a job i didn't really want to be working 
And it's very, very difficult to align what you want to be doing with your work for most people because the paths that are laid out for them when they're young aren't appealing. They're, people people aren't able to find an alignment between their passions and their labor. Well, this is actually, uh, this is really interesting. I'm reading a book right now about uh, the life and death of the Great Lakes. It's uh, it's by Dan Egan. It's really interesting. He talks about the ecological crisis that occurred as a consequence of the St. Lawrence Seaway and bringing ocean-going vessels into the Great Lakes. And one of the things that he talks about, which is kind of peripheral to the main story, is the job of a wildlife biologist in the fisheries department. And when you go into biology and you study biology, there's this idea that what you're going to be doing is you're going to be studying life and you're going to be able to understand something fundamental about nature. And in reality, what it is is that you go work for the wildlife department and you're just working at the fish hatchery or you're doing this this endless drudgery of creating a recreational environment for people to be able to fish coho salmon on the great lakes and so the 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 desire is not aligned with the reality of what you must end up doing and I think well, that's very frustrating. For I want to go back to how you began the discussion, uh, your comments, uh, saying that, of course, people want to get a property uh, of their own. What uh, The property I think you were talking about is a home of their own. Uh, they all want their basic means of self-support, and the key to a self-support is a home. Uh, the trick that the rentier classes played is to try to convince wage earners that instead of thinking of themselves as a wage earner, once they have a home, they're property owners and uh, uh, landlords in miniature. Even though they're landlords to themselves, and the GDP treats them as uh, uh, a landlord to themselves, uh, they really don't uh, rent out the apartment. They don't live on rent. They pay uh, their mortgage in that, uh, instead of rent. And uh, for uh, when I uh, grew up, uh, uh, houses were priced at a uh, – basically, the mortgage uh, charge every month was about the same as uh, paying rent to a landlord. So, of course, people – White people uh, wanted to be able to have their own uh, homes. Uh, black people were redlined, which is why you have so much uh, uh, inequality uh, today, because uh, the uh, rising uh, out of the wage earning class into the homeowning class, not to mention property owner class, was uh, very specifically uh, restricted to white people as official bank uh, policy. Uh, so, and, uh, and that's just 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 real quick. So. People who haven't heard that term, redlining, it means drawing up the different jurisdictions by which banks will give loans to own a house. Is there something something like that? Yes, uh, they would. Uh, banks would not lend uh, money either to uh, black uh, uh, home buyers who wanted to get a mortgage, or they wouldn't lend money in neighborhoods that were primarily black. Uh, for instance, uh, where I lived on the Lower East Side of uh, uh, New York City uh, for many years, uh, uh, they, uh, that uh, that is one of the major factors. That racism is one of the major factors that has created a dual economy in the United States. But to get back to what I was saying about homes, uh, some families in the 1950s uh, found that well, you could uh, pay one quarter of your income 
and get a mortgage to buy a home that would pay for it, uh, uh, that quarter of the income would completely make the home yours after 30 years, which was about the average working life at that time. So everybody could have their own home. Uh, and some uh, uh, people thought, well, okay, this is the criterion of what they call middle class. Well, really, there's no such thing as the middle class. Either you're a wage earner uh, or you're a uh, uh, a industrial, uh, an entrepreneur or a finance capitalist or uh, like uh, most of the 1%, you inherit uh, your money uh, mm. uh, in a financial trust fund uh, uh, from the uh, the parents. So, uh, But some families in the 1960s, 1970s thought they could make even more money from their wages than uh, if they could buy an apartment and or and rent it out and they could live on their uh, their homes and uh, other families thought well uh, my pension fund puts money in uh, the uh uh, the stock market, uh, may, uh, now that I, uh, my housing prices have gone way up, uh, and I don't have to pay any more of my mortgage, I can, uh, buy stocks too. So you had wage earners beginning to think of themselves as landlords and finance capitalists in miniature, uh, and they lost, uh, what used to be called class consciousness. Uh, and one effect of this was that, uh, when, pol- when the, uh, landlord class or the banks said, uh, let's, uh, cut back, uh, real estate state uh, taxes. Let's cut back taxes. Then it'll be easy for you homeowners uh, to have even more money. Well, uh, they were really, uh, the homeowners were used as uh, frontmen for the big real estate uh, investors and for the big banks who lent the money to the real estate investors. And so the homeowners, like in uh, uh, California, under Proposition 13, uh, were tricked into saying, okay, let's uh, freeze uh, the taxes not only on homeowners, but for the big real estate developers. Well, the result is that uh, uh, the uh, uh, housing prices so have soared along with the prosperity and the growing population of California, but that tax revenues have not gone up at all in California. So uh, by the time Ronald Reagan came in, said, well, we've cut all the real estate taxes. Let's get rid of education. Let's get rid of all of the social spending. We can't afford it. Uh, and uh, the uh, the homeowners, the, the people who actually had to work for a, a wage in California uh, have found uh, their social services cut uh, and every Everything because uh, uh, what they thought was simply benefiting themselves, well, uh, the vast majority was given to commercial property owners uh, uh, who uh, didn't sell the property. They just uh, would transfer uh, transfer the ownership papers or uh, uh, some similar uh, accounting uh, uh, fiction. So uh, the result is that uh, the small uh, wage earners wanting to rise into the middle class voted for policies that benefit the 1%, thinking, well, maybe someday I'll rise into the 1%, uh, not that's, realizing that's exactly, how vastly different it was. That's exactly what I was going to say, which is that there's something about America that creates the illusion that everyone can become a billionaire, where well, there's this yeah. massive fantasy that perhaps one day I will be the person that benefits directly from this. And so people almost see themselves as If I as just being... work hard enough, right? If I just, like, jump into this game as hard as I can. Yep. And there's no way that they can. And that when George McGovern was running for president, uh, in I think 1968, uh, he tried to explain this and, uh, uh, he was booed by the, uh, labor union he was talking to. And he commented, they must think they're going to win a lottery. Well, yes, they think they'll win a lottery. 
Reagan also had this other component to his policy, which was that these benefits to the the larger financial institutions would somehow trickle down, right? That they would they would in, inject some life into the working class and so forth. And the the sad part is that it seems like those the ramifications of those decisions take many years to show up. And so it wasn't immediately apparent that it was a failed experiment until, you know, somebody else was in office. And then, of course, that person gets blamed for the economic failure. Well, during uh, after World War Two, uh, housing was so inexpensive that uh, the only way that houses could be sold were to have somebody take out a loan and uh, uh, a mortgage loan and uh, buy a house. Uh, and the bankers didn't want to lose money on mortgage loans by uh, doing what they did under uh, uh, the uh, bank frauds of uh, uh, the uh, 2005 to 2000 under the uh, Bush administration. Uh, the bankers wanted to make loans that could be repaid. And so uh, they set the... Uh, uh, the uh, mortgage payments that, as I said, one quarter of the income, uh, you had to put 10% down, uh, and uh, the mortgage couldn't absorb more than that. So that put a, a cap on how much the house could be uh, sent for. Uh, what people didn't realize that uh, when uh, mortgage, when uh, taxes on land were uh, cut, the actual housing prices continued to go up. This, there's always going to be rent of location. Uh, housing prices are going to go up if you live uh, near a subway uh, or a park or a school. Uh, right today, just before uh, this show uh, on the uh, New York City News, they said uh, New York was going to spend uh, $4 billion by expending, extending the 2nd Avenue subway from 96th Street to 125th Street. Uh, this is going to make landlords all along the route richer. Uh, they said they're going to have to raise up uh, fares for people, and they can't afford to fix uh, the subway uh, uh, signals here in Queens, uh, but uh, that they're going to borrow the money, uh, run into debt. They're going to have to ta- uh, raise uh, 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 funds uh, somehow. Uh, and uh, they didn't have to pay a penny for this. They they spent, uh, I think, $8 billion on uh, extending the 2nd Avenue subway maybe five years ago. They didn't have to spend a penny on it because uh, the... Uh, all along the subway routes, once you had a subway going, real estate prices, home prices, went uh, rents went way up by, I think, uh, $12 billion was uh, uh, the estimate. And uh, they could have uh, recovered. Uh, all that New York City had to do was tax the free lunch. You make a public investment. You increase the value of property, and that's usually what uh, uh, increases the value of public investment. And so you, you recapture the uh, cost of this uh, public improvement by uh, uh, taxing back the land uh, along the route with a, a, a land price tax. Uh, they didn't do it. They left all of the benefits of this public in, uh, uh, spending to the landlords. Uh, to get, uh, to charge higher rents or to the property owners who then could turn around and sell their, uh, buildings for uh, a much, uh, a huge 
free lunch gain. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, because, uh, they, uh, the whole logic of Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, uh, Marx, uh, uh in the Communist Manifesto's first thing, the, all of the free market economists of the 19th century said, you have to collect, uh, the land rent in order for it not to go to the landlord class or the bankers, uh, who want to collect the rents as interest rates. Uh, the, they don't do that today. That's part of the backwardness uh, of the uh, of the economic theory that says, look at how much richer we're making the economy by making the one percent richer, and the one percent is getting richer by charging more money to the ninety nine percent by uh, by uh, paying less taxes and giving the government uh, less money, and by blocking the government from simply creating the money, insisting that the government borrows from uh, the one percent instead of just printing out its own money, which is what it does anyway when it borrows from the one uh, percent so yeah you're having uh main the whole uh model that uh, people are told of how ec- economies work is is science fiction uh i don't think economics should be taught uh as a social science or anywhere in the science it should be taught in the literature departments is uh, science fiction about a parallel universe about how a completely different world would work with a completely different kind of gravity and uh, economics it's it doesn't describe reality at all. It's a, a travesty of reality, and uh, students uh, and the public are not even exposed to uh, the kind of economic reality that put industrial capitalism in motion to begin with uh, during its great takeoff. And uh, uh, you're right, people did benefit uh, at the takeoff. And after World War II, uh, the way to rise into the middle class and get rich uh, was indeed uh, to go into debt and buy a house. But things began to change after the Vietnam War, and uh, uh, and you had a huge uh, 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 falsification of economics. Uh, you had junk economics uh, replace uh, uh, the classical economics. Well, with the real estate industry, it seems a little bit strange to me because they're one of the largest lobbying groups in the country. I remember looking this up there after the pharmaceutical industry and the Chamber of Commerce. And it seems crazy that the way that real estate works is that there is a person brokering the deal on both ends that wants to maximize the price at which the exchange occurs. And to me, that seems like the most obvious possible corruption of a system, because how can you have somebody who's brokering a deal who directly benefits by maximizing the cost? Uh, even if they weren't a broker, just uh, if there were an auction without a broker, if the government would have an auction, you're still going to have real estate prices going up because some locations are more desirable than others. Uh, even uh, in a society that doesn't uh, actually pay rents, uh, I, uh, one American uh, property assessor that I know uh, went to Russia uh, in 1991, uh, right after the Soviet Union fell apart, and was trying to explain uh, to the mayor of St. Petersburg uh, and his assistant, Vladimir Putin, uh, how uh, to assess rents. And uh, they, he was trying to say, well, uh, you're going to have to raise money to finance the St. Petersburg government. Uh, uh, how, how, 
uh, how are you uh, going to uh, decide that some rents are more important than the others? And uh, at the time, uh, American investors were hoping to buy uh, right across the Moscow River. There was the uh, uh, chocolate red uh, red chocolate factory, uh, and that, they were going to tear it down and gentrify it. Uh, they were going to tear down the Goom department store and gentrify it. Well, so uh, he took the mayor uh, of St. Petersburg uh, down the street, uh, and it was. Uh, uh, in the fall, and he noticed, uh, see, there are stores on both sides of the street. They're both selling things and stands. You'll notice that everybody's walking on the sunny side of the street. The sunny side of the street uh, makes uh, that side more attractive to people, because uh, uh, certainly to stores, because if you're walking on that side of the street, you're more likely to have people come into your store and buy something. So even though uh, the rent is charged or the, you know, uh, the rent is provided or uh, the, the, you, nobody's actually paying a rent or owning this yet, uh, some property is going to be more valuable than others simply because of its location. Uh, and uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg said, well, how do we uh, make, uh, you know, since we don't have a real estate market yet, how do we uh, uh, make this? And so uh, my uh, uh, appraiser friend said, well, uh, here's a land map of Boston, and uh, you'll find ups and downs and ups and downs. And where's the high land rent? Subway stop. Then I go down in between the subway stop. Here's another subway stop up. And, uh, you, you will take that, uh, that map of, uh, the shape of, uh, uh, how people value land for Boston and we'll superimpose it on St. Petersburg. Uh, and we can see around the St. Petersburg stops around here's where the Neva River is. That's going to be a prime property. Here are more other uh, properties. So, uh, even if people didn't pay rent, there's such a thing as rent of location. And, uh, that was a, uh, uh, the, uh, I, I gave uh, three lectures before the Russia Duma. Uh, I was brought over along with other Americans to try to convince them uh, to finance their post-Soviet society uh, by doing what the classical economists uh, wanted to do. Uh, but uh, they didn't give me uh, uh, $500 million, which is what it would have cost to bribe the government officials to do something completely different and uh, to end up uh, destroying the Russian economy under Yeltsin by uh, bribing corrupt officials and putting in uh, the uh, client oligarchy uh, that they put in. So uh, uh, not only did nobody take my advice and those of my uh, American friends who went over, uh, uh, economists who went over, but uh, the politician who brought us over, Sviatoslav Zelensky, uh, had, uh, uh, was maneuvered out of uh, the election campaign by the corrupt neoliberals that uh, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy and the CIA uh, sent over to make sure that uh, any, any uh, official that wanted to help Russia would be removed from the scene and to put in uh, uh, people who wanted to do, who wanted to make money themselves by wrecking uh, the Russian economy under Yeltsin which is why we're seeing the tension between Russia and NATO that you're seeing today. How did the CIA and the governments of the people end up not working for the people? How you did mean they, in the United States? Yeah, say in the United States. Uh, it's been that, uh, that's a characteristic of democracy ever since uh, uh, Greece and Rome. Uh, the hmm. Democracies, uh, uh, as Aristotle said, 
turn into oligarchies. Uh, and the oligarchs that turn over, and uh, uh, Aristotle said everybody calls themselves a democracy, but in reality, uh, they're oligarchies uh, because some people get richer and richer and they use their money uh, to buy control of the uh, political process. Uh, and in America, of course, uh, the Supreme Court's uh, 2010 uh, uh, ruling that uh, uh, Citizens United uh, lets, uh, puts essentially uh, political uh, positions up for grabs. Uh, and if you want to be head of uh, uh, a, a House or a Senate uh, uh, economic committee, uh, the head of the committee has to agree to uh, pay a uh, a few hundred thousand dollars uh, to the Democratic Party and I assume the Republican Party leadership uh, so that they can buy the position. So all of the, so the positions in a democracy are actually uh, sold to the oligarchy, uh, which also Wait, is controlled you, the Supreme Court. Can you elaborate on that payment scheme? Uh, on the, what? Well, you said that in order to be the head of a committee, you have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes. Uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi said that uh, 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 the way they decide who to put the head of every committee was uh, the uh, – the uh, Congress people will say, I want to join this committee or that committee. Uh, and uh, to be the head, you have uh, first, uh, you have to raise a given amount of money from your campaign contributors. So the, uh, the congressman or woman who can raise the highest amount of money from their campaign contributors gets to be head of the committee. Well, imagine uh, what politician, uh, the real estate interests, the banking interests, uh, and the 1% are going to give their money to. They're going to give the money to the people who uh, represent their interests. They're going to get a puppet, someone like President Biden, who uh, basically work as the uh, senator from the credit card company state, uh, Delaware, which is where most American corporations are incorporated because of their uh, uh, pro-corporate uh, uh, special privileges that they that they give. Or uh, you, uh, the bankers would uh, back somebody who uh, they'll say, we want somebody who can get the votes of uh, uh, and uh, get elected, but who's going to double cross the voters and represent us against the voters. And uh, they, the most perfect uh, demagogue they could find was, of course, President Obama, uh, who uh, uh, came in promising to help uh, uh, homeowners and to uh, uh, punish the uh, uh, crooked bankers who'd uh, done the huge financial fraud that led to junk mortgages. Uh, and uh, Obama had promised to roll back junk mortgages to the realistic uh, housing value and the realistic uh, value of rents. Well, instead, as soon as he got elected, he invited uh, the, his leading uh, campaign contributors and bankers to the White House and said, boys, I'm the only guy standing between you and the mob with the pitchforks. That's what he called the mob with pitchforks, the people who'd voted for him. Uh, and he was very explicit in this. And uh, he appointed uh, uh, probably the most uh, uh, pro-bank uh, adv- uh, administrators that he possibly could, people like Tim Geithner. Uh, and uh, the attorney generals uh, that that uh, uh, he put in people who just would would uh, stiff uh, the banks. Uh, I'm sorry, who would stiff the bank customers uh, and make them pay uh, these unrealistic mortgages. I describe all of this in my book, uh, Killing the Host, uh, uh, which is about this this whole period. So uh, and. Uh, a really successful demagogue is like a successful con man. 
the the victim, the mark, doesn't even know that he's being cheated. And the uh, the uh, uh, the people who voted for Obama, most of them uh, think, gee, if only Michelle could run, maybe. Uh, they don't get how they were cheated. They don't get how Obama had made his whole uh, reputation in Chicago by tearing down black neighborhoods and making fortunes for uh, the, the, real, the real estate investors, especially the Priskers, uh, one of whom is now uh, governor of Illinois, uh, by gentrifying all of the slums. And uh, Obama just essentially worked with the real estate reverends and the University of Chicago uh, and the politicians uh, and said to the low-income black families there, get off my land. This is uh, – I'm working for the uh, – uh, you know, uh, for the, the Pritzkers and uh, uh, their uh, colleagues right now. And uh, uh, somehow uh, that uh, didn't get into uh, discussion during the uh, uh, election because not only the government, but the media, the newspapers are con- owned and controlled by the uh, 1%. So it's very difficult uh, when you have a population that is uh, told a false picture of reality and if they go to school, they, uh, they're taught a false picture of how the economy works. How, how on earth are you going to uh, have the consciousness to say, nah, now I understand how the economy works. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to make the economy work for the people, for the 99%. That, uh, how are you going to keep that knowledge from them? Well, the only way is by not teaching the history of economic thought, not teaching economic history at all, uh, but teaching the science fiction uh, parallel universe story that uh, uh, is uh, uh, that economists uh, uh, t- uh, uh, talk about when they act as lobbies for the financial and the real estate sector. What? Oh, go ahead. I'm just curious. I know we can't get inside of Obama's head, but do you think that he made these moves consciously, or do you think that he actually believed in the rhetoric that he was preaching? When you, when he invites people to the White House and says, I'm the only guy standing between you and the uh, mob with pitchforks, I think uh, he's quite conscious. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I know his professors at Harvard. I, I lectured at the uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, and one of his uh, uh, professors, a black professor, uh, came up to me afterwards and said, uh, uh, you know, we never really trusted him because uh, uh, although he had a very prestigious job editing the the uh, Harvard Law Journal, uh, he said, you know, most editors of the Harvard Law Journal go on to become a clerk for one of the Supreme Court justices. That's, uh, you know, the highest uh, uh, postgraduate position you can get. But uh, Obama didn't do that. He became a community organizer. And the professor said to me, what is a community organizer? And then he made it very clear. He works with the real estate reverends, as I said, the university. He works with the landlords to uh, basically gentrify neighborhoods because that's where the money is. Uh, you, you want to uh, look at a, a neighborhood that is uh, the city's been starving it of social services. Uh, it's been impoverishing it. Uh, all of us, and yet it's centrally located. Uh, and that good location, if only you can get the people out of there, uh, you're going to uh, make a lot of money. Well, uh, you had to be conscious of that. And I also know uh, one of my uh, uh, good friends was uh, in uh, the law school class with Obama. And uh, she said way back then, um, uh, he did, uh, how to put it uh, delicately, he did not speak uh, uh, in a friendly term about certain racial groups uh, that later ended up voting for him. Fascinating. I mean, he said a couple of things that I don't want to gloss over. Um, I want to talk about 
the ancient world a little bit. And because you said this problem is as old as democracy, did the ancients suffer from the same catastrophic buildup of wealth in a tiny portion of the population? And what was the consequences of that? Were there revolts? Like, there seems like there must be some incentive for the oligarchs not, well, there must be some incentive in place for the oligarchs not to suffer rebellion or they want they want the people to be happy right because that's productive for them because the mob with pitchforks is coming i don't think so no they want the people to be unhappy if you're unhappy you're depressed and you're absolutely crushed uh Mm. employers today want to make uh workers as unhappy as they can they want to break their spirit uh forget about making them happy if you make them happy they'll try to have the energy and the courage to make things better for themselves that's dangerous uh, I don't know. Okay, so I don't necessarily know that I agree with that 100% because I look at something like the tech industry. And the tech ah, industry is yes. notorious for making their workers very happy. And that's, I think uh, yes. from everything that I've seen of people who work in the tech industry, it's actually quite effective because it creates a bubble in which you exist yes. where you show up to work and it's this you know, free food and treats and entertainment and everything is very nice and fancy. And I definitely think that it dulls Absolutely. the revolutionary yes, edge. That's right. Uh, that's more creative. Work. You're right for that. That Not everybody can work in the tech industry. But I want to get back to antiquity. There weren't always oligarchs. Uh, for 25 years, I worked with Harvard University in the archaeology department, anthropology department, and uh, we... We, re- we wrote the economic history of the ancient Near East, the Bronze Age from Sumer to Babylonia from about 2500 B.C. to uh, uh, the time of Jesus. And uh, the re- uh, from the very beginning, m- my main concern for my entire working life has been to deal with the problems called by, caused by debt. Uh, and I wanted to uh, study debt cancellations in antiquity. And how did, how did society create money? How did it deal with the problems that debt created? So uh, we invited the leading experts of uh, every uh, of Sumer, ba- Old Babylonia, Neo-Babylonia, Egypt, uh, the surrounding regions. And uh, basically, uh, you had... Uh, uh, an oligarchy was prevented from developing uh, because you had the rulers, uh, they were called divine kingship at that time. Uh, every Babylonian ruler uh, did what uh, every Sumerian ruler did. When they took the throne, they would cancel all personal debts uh, and agrarian debts to start with a, a clean slate. Uh, mm. And why did they do this? Uh, every ruler uh, found, had the same problem. Uh, here's the problem that debt caused in Babylonia and Mesopotamia. Uh, if uh, you had a bad harvest uh, and uh, you'd borrowed uh, money uh, during the year uh, and the harvest failed, you couldn't pay. Or if you got sick, uh, you couldn't pay. And if you couldn't pay, then uh, you would owe uh, the uh, tax collector or the palace official uh, money, and uh, that would uh, uh, be paid interest, and you'd have to work, but there wasn't money. Uh, people didn't use much money uh, for the first 3,000 years at all. Uh, way down into medieval times, people only used money at harvest time, uh, when it, uh, uh, payment during the year, most, pe- uh, most economies worked on credit. Uh, if you were in Babylonia and uh, you wanted to go out for a beer, you'd go to the ale woman's house and, uh, she would mark, uh, the price of the beer on a tab, just like people today will go to a bar and, uh, put it on a tab to be paid at payday. 
Well, in uh, in ancient times, the payday was the harvest. And uh, when the harvest was put in in any Babylonian city, uh, you'd bring your harvest to the weighing house. And the uh, the grain and the crop that you would produce would be to weigh, at, weigh down on the floor. And out of that crop, you would take the money that you'd uh, the, the, you'd pay the debts that you'd run up during the crop year. You'd pay the... Uh, uh, the ale lady, you'd pay the temple, you'd pay the palace, you'd pay uh, everybody, and then you'd keep uh, what was left. Well, what would happen if there's a crop failure? Uh, if there, uh, if you couldn't pay, then you'd have to work off your debt to the creditor uh, on on his land, uh, not uh, your own land or someone else's or the government. Or the and if you had to work for the creditor, then you wouldn't be available. To work at corvée labor. Corvée labor was the public labor to build temples, to build walls, to build palaces, to build public infrastructure. Uh, and uh, this uh, labor would not be available uh, to the palace. And if you'd have to fight in the army, suppose that a neighboring town attacked you. Uh, uh, well, you'd be working for the creditor. You wouldn't have the army. So it was in the interest of rulers to cancel uh, the debts. And they could do it because most debts were owed to themselves or the bureaucracy the uh the ale lady got uh her beer from uh the temples uh on on credit and uh if uh uh, at the end of the year, she would get all of the uh, uh, the crop that was weighed out from her uh, customers, and she'd pay the crop for uh, what she owed to the uh, uh, to the temples for the advance of the beer uh, that they had uh, and uh, uh, her obligations. So uh, when there was a crop failure, uh, the the uh, rulers uh, like Hammurabi would say, "Well, uh, we don't want." Uh, the Babylonian citizens to fall into debt, uh, so, uh, uh we'll, you don't have to pay the crop lady, uh, the, uh, the, uh, ale lady, and the ale lady doesn't have to pay what she owes, uh, to the palace. We'll have a, uh, a clean slate. That was right into Hammurabi's laws. Same thing about disease. If people got sick, they couldn't pay the debts. That prevented an oligarch from developing because the oligarchy, uh, uh as it began to develop, had enough money to try to uh, uh, rival the palace and to keep the labor and the land and for itself and uh, to try to use the profit, the interest that it got uh, and the labor that it got to build up its own lands. Well, we do have a few families in Babylonia that began to get rich, but uh, they ended up, uh, uh, the land kept going back uh, to Babylonia. Well, that was what happened throughout the entire Near East, from Mesopotamia to its neighboring countries. Uh, but what you were talking before uh, about the oligarchy was in Greece and Rome. Uh, Greece and Rome didn't have uh, uh, rulers like Hammurabi. They didn't have Babylonian-type rulers. They didn't have uh, uh, debt cancellation. In fact, uh, Greece and Rome didn't even have uh, interest charges until about the 8th century B.C. Uh, the, uh, there, uh, we know that there was a lot of debts. If you hurt somebody and you owed him money for breaking his arm uh, or something, uh, you would have to uh, uh, to pay, but uh, uh, there was no interest on uh, these things. It was the uh, Syrian and Phoenician traders that move, that meant, went from uh, the Near East into uh, the Aegean to uh, Greece, uh, all the way uh, to Rome uh, and uh, uh, neighboring Italian town uh, that gave the idea 
of uh, 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 charging interest on debts. And so gradually, uh, without rulers, you you had the uh, the local chieftains who were in charge of the uh, foreign trade of their area uh, ended ending up uh, uh, making money, and they uh, introduced the debt practices along with the weights and measures uh, that they were taught by the uh, uh, by the uh, Syrians and the other uh, Near Eastern merchants, and uh, they became a kind of mafia state, uh, and they were overthrown by uh, the uh, uh, leaders who uh, usually uh, from the leading families, but uh, uh, less prosperous part of the families, and uh, they had a revolution. They were called tyrants, and they had a revolution to cancel the debts, redistribute the land, and lay the groundwork for democracy. Uh, the peop- uh, tyrants weren't a bad word. Uh, if you wanted to uh, have your debts canceled and to be free, uh, you wanted a tyrant to take place. Uh, uh, and uh, that's how uh, basically you had uh, d- democracies, uh, proto-democracies created in Sparta and, and uh, Corinth and uh, uh, even in Athens uh, uh, later on. Uh, and gradually uh, in, in Rome, uh, you had... Uh, uh, leaders of, of Rome saying, well, how are, uh, you know, there are not many people over here because we're right on the river and, uh, people don't want to live near, uh, the river because there are a lot of mosquitoes here. Uh, this is not, not kidding. Uh, there are a lot of hills. It's not really good land. How are we going to get people here? Uh, well, they decided to, uh, make, uh, uh, rules that actually were going to give everybody, uh, access to land. Uh, they weren't going to let an oligarchy, uh, take control. They were sort of going to try to run a democracy for the people. Uh, and uh, you had uh, th- there are no records from this period, but all the Greek historians, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek historians who lived wrote the Roman history uh, agreed that uh, you know, pretty much uh, this is what happened. And uh, uh, the people who ran uh, uh, Rome uh, didn't have a divine kingship, but what they said is, well, we don't want the person who's going to take the throne after us to be an oligarch because they're going to represent the oligarchy. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to select somebody to come who, who's not from Rome and uh, we're going to appoint them as the leader so that they're not uh, favoritism towards any oligarchic family trying to uh, uh, either uh, get power at the cost of others or to get power by uh, exploiting the rest of society. And uh, You had that kind of kingship going on until about 509 BC and uh, just before that some of the people who came to Rome uh, had been uh, kicked out of their own cities or decided to leave their own cities and go to Rome with a lot of money. Uh, and uh, the oligarchs got together and they overthrew the kings in a coup d'etat around 509 BC. And mm-hmm. um, they uh, uh, there was no more kingship. They established a uh, senate uh, and uh, it was oligarchic. And immediately uh, you had all of the prosperity of Rome end for a, uh, a century. You had uh, utter exploitation, so much so that the Roman citizens walked out. They said, okay, we're going to do what people have been doing for uh, thousands of years in Babylonia and the Near East. We're going to run away. Uh, you settled Rome by having us run away from societies we didn't like before. We're going to emigrate. So they walked out of the uh, city of Rome, and Rome made enough concessions to them to come back that it made things a little bit better. 
But then the oligarchs got pretty bad again, and a half century later, around 450 BC, uh, there was another showdown. Uh, the uh, uh, the debtors said, uh, "Wait a minute! The creditors are just grabbing our property. Uh, they're not. Uh, there's no indication of debt. We want the the debt rules to be written down, and we want a public record of all this, so uh, we can't be cheated." Uh, and that was that was written into the Twelve Tables, uh, the the first laws that were inscribed uh, in Rome, and they were uh, posted publicly so that everybody would know the law. Uh, but the oligarchy still uh, became pretty aggressive. And for five centuries in Rome, you had one revolution and one revolt after another uh, by uh, the population wanting the same two demands, a debt cancellation and a redistributive land uh, because all, as Rome would be, uh, its army would conquer other lands. The lands would be given to the oligarchs. Not, not, uh, to resettle, uh, 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 veterans, uh, primarily. And so finally, uh, the oligarchies took over and, uh, uh, you, uh, by the time of Julius Caesar, uh, you, you had a, uh, a revolt of the debtors led by, uh, 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 I'm blocking out the name right now. Uh, you, you, you just had a debt revolution that failed. Uh, and so when Caesar was elected, people worried that he was going to cancel the debts, uh, and they killed him. Uh, uh, and, uh, that ended the Roman Republic. And then we had, uh, uh, the Roman Empire and, uh, which was pretty much run by the aristoc- aristocracy. And, uh, that, uh, uh, bequeathed, although the Roman Empire fell apart, uh, it bequeathed its legal philosophy, its pro-debtor philosophy, I mean, its pro-creditor philosophy to the West. And that philosophy was that all debts have to be paid no matter what the economic effects are, no matter what the social effects are. And even if collecting the debts uh, bring on a... Uh, uh, a dark age or a uh, poverty and feudalism, uh, we don't care we're, because we're getting rich uh, on all of this. And uh, essentially, that uh, is the ethic that uh, after the recovery in the Middle Ages, uh, you've, you've had that happen again and again uh, in, in Western economies. And uh, ultimately, the, the debts grow exponentially. By compound interest, uh, and they grow so much that at a certain point they exceed the ability to be paid. And when the debts exceed the ability to be paid, people lose their property. Just like in after 2008, under the Obama program, uh, you had huge uh, forfeitures. Almost 10 million Americans lost their families uh, to Obama double-crossing them and saying he's for the banks, not for the people. Uh, and uh, these uh, this land was bought up by large. Uh, 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 capital uh, companies that uh, have, have begun to turn uh, to reverse the American trend towards a personal home ownership and uh, turn America back into a rental society uh, like it was uh, uh, in earlier times. So uh, that's sort of uh, the, the big picture of uh, the kind of problems that uh, uh, debtors uh, uh, create. And uh, I describe these, I describe what happened in uh, uh, antiquity with, uh, and forgive them their debts, uh, 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 and I uh, describe the Greek and Roman, uh, re- uh revolutions in, uh, the collapse of antiquity, which was just published. So one thing that I immediately think of in this is that if you have a kingship that does not owe debts to an external king, so imagine a situation where you have a kingship And there's not enough interdependency where the king can say, fine, we can forgive the debts, we can move on, we'll start over from here. 
that's a functional system. But in a place like the United States, it's a country that owes so much money to other countries that it seems impossible to forgive debt unless all debt everywhere is forgiven. Well, uh, the uh, I should have made it clear that in Babylonia they didn't cancel all debts. Uh, commercial, uh, there, uh, a lot of debts were among merchants uh, trading with each other. Uh, the, the merchants were all citizens. The, mer- the commercial debts were all left in place. That wasn't a problem. If a merchant would somehow uh, lose money and uh, lose his fortune to another merchant, uh, the money would still stay in the mercantile class, and it wouldn't affect landholding. It wouldn't affect the obligation of uh, citizens to provide corvée labor or to serve in the army. So uh, only the agrarian debts, personal agrarian debts, uh, against which uh, uh, d- uh, the debtor owed their personal freedom, their labor, uh, they would become bond persons uh, for the, uh, which as you read in the Bible, uh, to their creditors. Uh, only the uh, personal debts were canceled, not the commercial debts. Uh, so today there's pressure uh, among uh, uh, the global South countries to say, wait a minute, we were pushed into debt by the uh, World Bank and the IMF, and uh, their philosophy didn't help us develop at all. Uh, everything they told us to get rich on by hurting our labor force, by lowering wages, uh, we, we killed the labor unions, just like they told us to do uh, uh, when uh, uh, Pinochet came in, supported by Kissinger. Uh, we murdered all of the land reformers, just like uh, the CIA told us to do when they send in uh, 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 the gun people from the uh, National Endowment for Democracy and the CIA. You know, we, we've killed all the smartest people. We've done everything you said, and it didn't help us get better. Uh, we're actually worse now that we've killed all the labor leaders and uh, closed uh, every economics department in the country that didn't teach uh, universities city of Chicago thought, which is what Shelley did. Uh, and so we think that these are odious debts. These debts uh, uh, are the neo-colonialism and you pushed us into the debt trap. We don't want to repay you. Uh, well, the United States said, well, if you do that, we'll just overthrow you. We'll have a color revolution. That's what the National Dem- uh, Institute of Democracy is for. Uh, and a democracy is someone, uh, is uh, a country that does what the United States tells it to and essentially runs the country for U.S. investors, U.S. bankers, and U.S. bondholders. Uh, an autocracy is a country that works for its own people and for its own uh, prosperity uh, instead of becoming a colony. So uh, that's part of the uh, uh, double uh, the uh, uh, double think uh, the Orwellian language uh, that American politics uses, uh, and uh, to sort of reflect the double think that uh, economic terminology uses. Well, this is an inherently necessary part of American prosperity, right? Because if you suddenly have to pay fair price for the resources of this country, it makes it much more difficult to maintain the richest standard of living in the entire world. And so there's this, there's this fight between what is morally right in terms of how you should treat the autonomy of other countries that is placed in conflict with the goals of domestic prosperity that says we need to be able to have cheap copper, cheap bananas, cheap whatever, because that's what we feed our people in order to protect ourselves from the mob with pitchforks. 
Well, that all depends how broadly you define the economic system. Uh, did the Dark Age really make uh, the Romans richer? Uh, the uh, the 1% of the Romans, who were the big landlords, especially in North Africa, uh, which was uh, the breadbasket of uh, uh, Rome in the 4th and 5th centuries uh, AD, uh, the, uh, they were sort of uh, uh, big frogs in a small pond. But if the fact is that if the whole world were growing uh, – as rapidly as China by following the very same economic policies that uh, industrial United States followed in the late 19th century, uh, free education, subsidized public services, uh, uh, subsidized transportation, uh, loans made mainly for uh, uh, productive capital investment and uh, the means of production and uh, factories and equipment. Uh, if the whole world were more uh, uh, were more profitable. Uh, America could have shared in that prosperity. Uh, but, uh, America said, uh, we, we're really not after prosperity. We want to be richer than the other guy. And mm-hmm. we can be more richer than other people if we make the whole world poor. We're willing to be poor. We're willing to have only half as much money as now as long as we can make other people four times poor. Uh, our ego, we get our kicks out of screwing the rest of the world. That's what we want to do. Uh, and uh, as long as we're running things, we're happy. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just walk out like the old Roman citizens? I think the new German citizens are doing that today. Uh, they're saying, now that uh, America, now that uh, we don't have our gas and uh, oil and uh, other raw materials from Russia, uh, there's uh, our uh, steel industry and our uh, heavy uh, industries uh, uh, shutting down. Where are we going to immigrate? Well, our employers are going to go. Where they are they going to go to the United States? Maybe Alabama and the South, which is not in, not unionized. Are uh, uh, but. Uh, then we couldn't be in a labor union there. Are we going to go to Russia? Are we going to go to China? Maybe Kazakhstan, uh, maybe Iran. Uh, th- you can be sure that uh, uh, the German industry uh, is being followed by uh, its employees to saying, where on earth are we going to go? Uh, you're going to have uh, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and uh, Estonia have lost 20% of their population since uh, the neoliberals uh, uh, economies replaced the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, they've all uh, emigrated. Same thing uh, in Poland. You had the whole wave of what was called Polish plumbers going into uh, England. You're having neoliberal economies emptying out all over the place. Uh, the problem is that Americans uh, aren't very good at foreign languages. So where on earth can they emigrate to? Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's not much, enough room for them in New Zealand and Australia and uh, they don't have enough money to buy uh, real estate in Australia given it's uh, uh, bank-financed uh, housing uh, bubble uh, there right now. So I don't know where American uh, can emigrate. So there are a couple of solutions. One is uh, you emigrate into taking uh, tranquilizers. Uh, you emigrate into unconsciousness. Uh, mm. Another way is suicide rates uh, are going way up. You emigrate uh, in going to wherever you're going to uh, end up after you're dead. I guess it's into the ground. Uh, you're having uh, uh, the uh, <laughs> uh, that that kind of uh, 
uh, immigration. And uh, but uh, I know 50 years ago, and in the, in the 1960s, people were thought that how on earth is the Soviet Union going to really develop uh, since Stalinism doesn't work? Uh, the logical thing they thought would be for American companies to bring American labor over there and to uh, organize uh, help organized Russian industry so that it would be productive instead of uh, so wasteful with some kind of market feedback, some sort of uh, industrial uh, planning. That never worked. Uh, and uh, when, the t- when finally uh, uh, the Soviet uh, leaders uh, realized, the army and the KGB said, okay, we realize that Stalinism doesn't work. Uh, help us. Uh, instead of having industrial companies replicate how the United States was getting rich by industry, uh, you had the neoliberals go over there and uh, basically just wanted to privatize uh, and give away uh, na- uh, natural resources, oil, uh, public ut- electric utilities, uh, railroads, uh, and especially land and uh, uh, urban uh, uh, buildings and property, uh, uh, you, uh, you had something entirely uh, different. So you never did have the productive em- uh, emigration that could have made uh, uh, Russia and uh, the former Soviet economies uh, just grow like the United States had grown. Instead, you turned them into uh, uh, – think of them as a, uh, a, a vision of the future of what the United States will look like as uh, Americans uh, follow the same neoliberal policies today that destroyed the Baltics and uh, Russia. Is there – I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a way for individual citizens in America to walk away from these financial – Debting structures. Is it possible to live in America and not participate in this structure? No, uh, it's funny. Uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, a lot of uh, utopian mo- uh, utopian movements in Europe thought, "Let's immigrate to America," and they immigrated into all sorts of utopian communities. Uh, that ended. Uh, that's how the Amish uh, came to America and other groups uh, 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 like them. Uh, uh, and they still are living in a quasi uh, medieval, not very modern time, uh, t- trying to reject uh, uh, the whole way that we're going now. And um, I remember in the 1960s, uh, Max Shackman gave a, like, a socialist leader, gave a lecture and said, what happened to all the old socialist leaders? Where did they go? And he said, they all went out west. They all went just to get a farm. They all wanted to join together. Uh, and today, I have uh, know a number of my uh, former uh, socialist friends who've gone to uh, uh, Mexico, uh, to uh, Baya, California, to form uh, communities there. Uh, so uh, they've sort of, but they're retirees, so they can afford to do that. Uh, it's very. It, there's really no way that if you need to make a living, and if you don't inherit a trust fund from your family, uh, you really have to be part uh, of the wage earner force. Uh, and if you read the newspaper and watch television, you're told not to think of yourself as a wage earner. You're uh, a potential finance capitalist in miniature. You can still get rich playing the uh, the stock market. You can still try to be a, 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 buy some real estate and rent it out. You can still try to uh, play the game as if you're uh, an investor. Uh, just don't think of yourself as uh, uh, wage earners. Live on hope. But that's becoming even harder now because uh, I think the Federal Reserve reports that half the Americans don't have any uh, net worth at all. Zero savings. 
uh, and uh, I think uh, even for more prosperous Americans, uh, uh, they may have five thousand dollars in net worth. Uh, you go up a little bit, uh, fifty thousand. Uh, there just isn't enough uh, uh, savings to be able to withdraw. Uh, what there is is a whole overhead, an avalanche of debt that is built up exponentially since 1945. So much so that uh, there's uh, the people are actually having to cut back their spending on food, on clothes, on eating out in order to pay their their credit card debt uh or their mortgage debt or their uh their rents or their medical debt uh or their medical insurance uh they're broke and uh the, so the cities and states budgets are also in deficit they're uh they're broke uh so you you're having uh and companies are going bankrupt like uh that have been looted by uh, uh Wall Street like Bed Bath and Beyond and uh Sears and other countries that have companies that have been looted by uh, uh, private capital uh, coming in and uh, uh, just uh, loading it down with debt, uh, borrowing uh, money from banks, paying themselves dividends, and uh, uh, then leaving the company bankrupt. Uh, The industrial companies are bankrupt, as well as the workforce, and as well as the cities uh, in which the companies and the workforce are located. So the uh, American economy has uh, reached a dead end. That's what uh, uh, Biden is not uh, telling the people. Bidenomics means, you know, ha-ha, you're really going to get the fist in the face after I'm invited, uh, I'm, uh, uh, re- if I'm re-elected, uh, because there isn't any money to re-industrialize, but uh, you won't know that until I'm re-elected. Can you, uh, I, I don't totally understand what you mean about the way that industrial capital looted places like Sears and Bed Bath & Beyond. Can you elaborate on that a little Wait, bit? Wait, could you repeat the question? Well, you were saying that industrial capital looted places like Sears and Bed Bath and Beyond. Yes. Can you elaborate? It's not on industri- that? No, industrial capital didn't uh, pay a penny for that. This is finance capital. Finance. Uh, capital. You had uh, large fortunes to come in and ta- called taking a company private. They would buy out the stockholders of uh, Bed Bath and Beyond or Sears, uh, and now th- uh, they ran the whole company. And they said, "We're in the company. What are we going to do?" Well, we're going to do what Sam Zell did uh, in uh, uh, when he bought the uh, Chicago Tribune. First of all, we're going. Uh, there's a lot of uh, public. Uh, our employees have a lot of stocks and uh, their retirement accounts. We're going to empty out their retirement accounts, and we're going to repay the banks that have lent us the money to buy uh, this company. Uh, so now the republic. We've just wiped out the employers. That's uh, very efficient for uh, efficient. And uh, then uh, we're going to. Uh, 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 in Bed Bath and Beyond, uh, the story's been told often enough. They uh, immediately borrowed. Uh, first of all, they charged themselves a twenty percent management fee. Uh, they paid out uh, all of the uh, earnings uh, and profits that Bed Bath and Beyond made in dividends, and then they borrowed uh, a few hundred million dollars. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, Bed Bath and Beyond had a big bank account, and so they paid themselves a special dividend to the owners who bought them out. And uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, was left with owing the debt uh, that it had borrowed from the banks, 
but all the money was gone with the uh, private capital owners, so they emptied it out. That's what private capital does. It doesn't build up businesses. It strips them. It's asset stripping. You make more money in bankruptcy than you can make in any other way. It, just like in uh, in Rome, when you would uh, make a loan to a poor uh, uh, cultivator, and then you'd uh, foreclose on the land, it, it could be a little loan, but you'd own the, uh, the land. In the United States, in the colonial uh, era, there was the Shays Rebellion by uh, farmers who'd uh, borrowed from British landlords and uh, uh, and other creditors. They'd make a loan, they'd lose their land. Uh, that was a, uh, that fight of uh, uh, indebted uh, farmers and landowners was uh, you had that after uh, the uh, uh, Revolutionary War and the uh, uh, in other the Whiskey Rebellion uh, and other things. You've had a constant. Uh, uh, the easiest way to make money is not to be repaid, but for closing on property. That's how uh, the Fuggers got rich in uh, uh, in uh, medieval Europe, by making loan to the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs couldn't pay. They wanted to buy their, uh, uh, their uh, bishopry or buy a, a property or wage war. And uh, so they, they lost their... Uh, their silver mines uh, to the Habsburgs. Uh, uh, the loan, the American, uh, the uh, uh, American investors got rich on loan on the government making loans to Latin America that it couldn't pay, and then the IMF and the World Bank come, came in and forced them to say, "Okay, you'll raise the money by selling off your land, selling off your oil rights, selling off your forests, selling off your uh, your uh, minerals uh, rights and your mines." Uh, that's how you make money, by people not paying the debt. Driving the economy bankrupt is the easiest way to make money, uh, and it's the way that the, the, the rich people prefer to make money uh, because they get to screw others in the process. And I know these guys, they really enjoy screwing other people. I've met but people uh, but aren't they worried? Like, don't, Isn't there some concern for the sustainability of that operation? No, because uh, first of all, their time for sustainability, their time frame is either three months uh, mm. or one year. They're remunerated at how uh, they can increase the profits uh, or their salary for one year. Their t- uh, finance lives in the short term. Finance doesn't look at sustainability. That's why there's not going to be any American support for uh, to prevent global warming uh, and to pre- for uh, uh, to cut back pollution because. Uh, the the oil industry and the uh, uh, the American economy says, well, we're controlling world diplomacy by our control of energy uh, and the oil trade uh, and our ability to threaten other countries to cut off their oil and gas if they don't do uh, uh, what we want. So, uh, yes, of course, in the end, uh, uh, there's going to be global warming and the sea levels will rise and everybody's going to be wiped out and uh, maybe 20 percent of the world population will uh, will die. But w- We'll get rich for the time being and we'll be dead. Who cares? You know, that's how they feel. We'll be dead. Who cares? Well, something that I don't understand is that if you are making decisions that are going to collapse the currency in which you hold your your resources, aren't you making yourself an enormous problem that is relatively short term? Who's going to collapse the currency? Well, if the situation in the country is such that there is no uh, private ownership, everything is in the hands of the oligarchs and the people don't want to work anymore and they feel like it's unfair and there's civil unrest and there's everything grinds to a halt, 
then don't you end up in a situation where the currency that you hold is no longer as valuable as it was when you made all of your machinations? No, for one thing, uh, you can take your current. Yeah, if you see that uh, prospect developing, you'll take uh, the currency out of the dollar and you'll put it in uh, Chinese yuan or you'll buy gold or uh, you'll buy something else. You'll take your money and run. That's what oligarchs do. They take their money and run when they have to. That's what the Romans did. Uh, that's uh, that's what uh, uh, com- companies. Uh, uh, that's what the lenders to uh, uh, that I just talked about to Bed Bath and Beyond did. They take the money and run. There's always somewhere to run to. Uh, they can buy land in uh, New Zealand uh, if they want. There's always something to buy, and you can be sure that uh, uh, the wealthy billionaires have houses all over the world. They do. So no matter what happens, they'll have somewhere to live very nicely. Why is there no laws in place that prevent this sort of thing? Uh, that would be, uh, the Supreme Court would say that that's not what, uh, the authors of the Constitution wanted to, uh, uh, uh said anything about, uh, uh, tw- uh, 250 years ago. So that's, uh, they, they won't, uh, uh, there's going to be a whole fight over whether there can be taxes on wealth. Uh, the Supreme Court was saying even the income tax is unconstitutional. Back in the 1890s, it took about 20 years, uh, fighting for the income, for, uh, uh, you're able to get, uh, Congress to, uh, pass the income tax over the Supreme Court. Uh, you have, uh, the fact that the, uh, 1% controls the political process the uh, newspaper media, the television stations, Hollywood. YouTube. Uh, uh, who's going to protest? People uh, are blaming them. Uh, if if people cannot cope, uh, they blame themselves. They said, well, look, GDP is going up, meaning the, our wealth of the 1% is going up. Uh, it must be uh, you must have uh, not played uh, the game of life right. Uh, why don't you just... Uh, Kill yourself or take uh, uh, ox- the the, uh, the pills that uh, uh, they're taking. They're, uh, uh, blame the victim. And uh, uh, you have uh, the word depression affects, uh, applies not only to economic depression, but to psychological depression. And in the United States, there really can only be two parties because of the way that they've, uh, uh, the duopoly has created uh, uh, blockages at the state level for uh, other uh, people running. And uh, basically, there are parts of the uh, – uh, both parties have uh, uh, the, the same program and the same donor class, uh, the 1%. So uh, mm. I don't – what's the alternative? People don't know uh, what to do. Yes, of course, there will be riots uh, or on a personal level, crime. Crime's going up all over the place, especially in San Francisco. Uh, but uh, that's not uh, really threatening uh, the uh, uh, the 1%. It'll all be uh, when uh, the slums were burned down in the 60s and 70s, they were burning down their own uh, uh, slums. They weren't uh, burning down uh, uh, the the nice gentrified neighborhoods. Mm. So this kind of makes me think of a movement towards depopulation in general, right? Because we have this progressive automation of technology for farming, for manufacturing. So everything that is goods-based 
is progressively becoming more automated. And so this is a continuation of a trend that you saw in agriculture that began at the turn of the century when you started to have mechanized combines where instead of having to have a small army deal with a field, you could just have a single person driving a truck and then machines could take care of everything else. We're accelerating that direction because people are trying to develop these, you know, general intelligence systems. And the general intelligence system is a replacement for the human, ultimately. And it's a replacement for the human that it's very convenient for the oligarch because it doesn't want rent, it doesn't want food, it doesn't want clean water. It's basically a machine that'll allow you to accumulate capital in the absence of a human that is actually working the levers of that machine. And so do you see there being a, a, a push towards depopulation that's accelerating where they don't actually care about the deaths of despair and they don't actually care about the potential impacts of, you know, any kind of pollution or climate change because they're going to have places to go where they're isolated from those shocks? Well, neoliberal economists have a, a, an alternative that they propose. All these uh, uh, farmers and workers who were replaced can become computer programmers. They can all uh, design uh, uh, artificial intelligence. After all, look at all the automation that occurred in uh, uh, the early 19th century. Uh, Marx said, uh, uh, had an argument uh, with the Ricardians. The Ricardians said uh, just what you said. Well, all this automation is going to replace labor. And Marx said, well, uh, you're going to have uh, capital equipment uh, rising, so uh, becoming productive so much more rapidly that uh, capitalists are going to spend more and more money uh, designing new equipment and building uh, new equipment, new factories, and uh, instead of uh, work, uh, uh, workers using the old equipment uh, and not working at their old job, they're going to become machine makers, uh, and they're going to become the technologists making machines. And during the 19th century, he was right, uh, all that, uh, to such an extent that when uh, uh, Carnegie uh, built the first big modern Pittsburgh steel uh, uh, ovens uh they uh they were just about to open them after a huge new steel mill was built and then they got the new german designs for a steel mill and uh carnegie tore down the whole steel mill and began all over again because already there was obsolescent uh, machinery and obsolescence of machinery created a whole market so that uh, uh the workers didn't have to weave their own clothes anymore uh, uh or cloth that was all they uh, there was uh an increasing demand for labor that's not going to happen today with uh, today's kind of uh uh automation i don't think uh because it's uh the form of labor is uh, too different uh so so, uh, yes, uh, you have the uh, Davos meetings in Switzerland uh, all about uh, saying, well, we, uh, uh, we really need to cut back the population of the world by maybe 20 percent. Uh, I think there have to be two billion people that have to buy for equilibrium. Economists love to talk about equilibrium. And so they say, well, you know, uh, maybe all this global warming isn't uh, such a bad thing. It's going to wipe out uh, Bangladesh. It's going to wipe out a lot of uh, uh, big cities all along uh, the waterfronts and the seashore all over the world. Maybe uh, you'll have less uh, population, and that means less usage of uh, uh, raw materials over time and more for us. Maybe that's not uh, such a bad thing. So uh, you're having uh, uh, the wealthy 
wealthiest uh, uh, economic think tanks all are welcoming uh, depopulation. And uh, they think that, uh, well, what did Mar- Malthus say? He said starvation will help, uh, wars will help, uh, disease will help. Uh, these are all the checks that uh, the neoliberal economists are looking forward to to uh, uh, create the kind of equilibrium that will create uh, the kind of world they'd like to live in. Hmm. I want to talk about the solution set to these crises, but I think we should take a quick break. Mm-hmm. 